Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Arthur Karabia. I work for ICMA and uh, the Asset Management and Investor Council of ICMA. I'm joined today by Bob Parker. Good morning, Bob. Bob is a chairman of uh, Asset Management and Investor Council. And uh, this is our regular market update podcast. Hopefully uh, you listened to the previous ones and uh, we are reaching the end of the year. So it's the opportunity uh, for Bob to tell us a bit about uh, 2022 and the outlook for 2022. So Thank Bob, you, Arthur. Uh, let's, let's kick in and uh, uh, let's, let's start. And uh, what do you foresee for 2022 as the main themes? Can we provide a, a broader review? And then uh, I'll, I'll start asking a more detailed question about each theme. Well, if we look back over the last two years, obviously the major theme of 2020 was the shock to the global economy from the outbreak of COVID. Um, And that shock was pronounced in China in the first quarter of 2020. And then, you know, the hit to other economies was pronounced in the second quarter uh, of 2020. We saw, as a result of that, a very strong policy response with an easing in monetary policy and uh, also emergency fiscal measures And that resulted largely in 2021, albeit with um, very much an erratic pattern. But the overall theme in 2021 was one of economic recovery from that shock of 2020. So, and that has been largely reflected, I think, in 2021 in the very strong rebound that we have seen, most notably in American and European equity markets and this modest uptrend in Uh, global fixed income yields that we've experienced through 2021. Now, in terms of 2022, many people use the word normalization after the shock of 2020 and the rebound of 2021. And clearly, uh, the major points to discuss in this podcast are, um, is there a threat to the global economy from uh, the increase in inflation? Um, And there are a number of economies most notably uh, the US and some emerging economies where inflation numbers have risen very sharply. They're up in Europe and Japan, but less so. And Asian inflation seems to be somewhat under control. But um, clearly inflation pressures um, are going to be a feature at the end of 2021 and early 2022. So that's one area to, uh, to focus on. Then after the very strong rebound that we've had in growth, in 2021, obviously one question is, well, to what extent does growth normalize or slow down uh, in 2022? And I think there is you know, some grounds for saying that um, you know, growth will still be reasonably strong, but obviously uh, we are going to moderate from the strong rebound of 2021. So that, that's area number two. And then there have been obviously a number of disruptions We have had supply chain disruption, we've had labour market disruption, and COVID has not gone away. And as we talk, there are still problems with outbreaks of COVID and latest variants, Omicron, that we are seeing in Europe and uh, also in the United States, less so in, um, in Asia. So... I think one question for 2022 is, you know, what's, are we going to see you know, ongoing disruption? And then the policy area of monetary policy and fiscal policy also needs to be looked at. And you know, one theme, um, which is very relevant as we talk, 
is to what extent monetary policy is going to be tightened and you know are we going to see interest rate increases from what are historically uh, very low interest rates uh, and for that matter very low bond yields and you know one feature of capital markets at the moment is obviously the extent of negative real yields um, in fixed income markets and you know just to quantify that you know, in Germany, we have inflation close to 5%, but we still have 10-year Bund yields uh, negative, you know, minus 30, minus 40 basis points. Um, in America, we have inflation at 7%, uh, but with 10-year US Treasury yields around 1.5%. Um, so that is you know, one interesting question for 2022, is what's going to happen uh, with those negative real bond yields? Will they become less negative or even potentially uh, revert to the norm, which is to become positive. Um, and then I think, finally, other than talking about equity markets, one can't close 2021 without a discussion on commodity prices. And, you know, one feature of the global economy with this strong rebound that we've seen um, is obviously very strong increases um, in uh, energy prices, whether it's being gas or oil. Um, and then also in metals markets, which are linked to um, change demand related to climate change. So, you know, if one looks at, for example, cobalt, lithium, lithium, a very important component in battery production, um, we've seen a, you know, a huge increase in prices there. So I think the outlook for the commodity universe is very important indeed, because it loops back into the first point of the discussion, which is inflation. So let me pause there, Arthur, and uh, let's try and get into some of these topics in some more detail. Yeah, thanks for the overview. Um, so the first, the first point you've highlighted is uh, um, a threat to the global recovery due to inflation. Uh, and it's interesting because you, you started a bit to answer um, or, or provide some element of responses. Because when you ask this question, I almost want to link it to you know, raising inflation, leading to uh, tighter monetary policy, and as a result, you would have um, a, a slowing down growth. And we know that that's very difficult to do it with tact so that it doesn't slow down too much the machine. Is that what you have in mind when we, you mentioned that? Well, I think the first point to make is that rising inflation is a tax on uh, income and a, you know, a tax on the consumer. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it's not surprising, and we've seen this very clearly, uh, in the States and in Europe, the rising inflation is reflected in weaker consumer confidence surveys. So, for example, if we see in the States, you know, the key consumer confidence survey is the one produced by the University of Michigan. And the last two to three months, it's not surprising that that has come down quite sharply. And that's highly correlated with the surveys of inflationary expectations um, and you know, the New York Fed has an index of inflationary expectations, and that has, you know, that has now rebounded to a record high. So I think that's the first factor. Um, I think one also needs to, on this discussion about inflation, one needs to look at what is causing higher inflation. And, you know, we mentioned earlier on the headline numbers in the States and, you know, and, and in the Eurozone. Um, but that is due to a combination of many factors. Uh, you know, the first factor is obviously demand. Demand has rebounded in this year of economic recovery. 
um, and that's against a background of very easy fiscal policies and uh, a very easy monetary stance by virtually all central banks over the last 18 months to two years. So that's the demand side of the equation. Linked into that demand side of the equation um, has been the, you know, the concept of pent-up demand. So when we had the shocks uh, to the global uh, economy in 2020, uh, consumers stopped spending, uh, consumer confidence collapsed, consumers built up their savings. So you know, if one looks in the first half of 2021, literally in every economy, um, personal savings rates were at record highs. So that pent-up demand, that pent-up savings has been reflected in what we saw in the middle of 2021, um, a rise in consumer demand. Um, and that in turn has fed into um, rising inflation, rising consumer prices, um, and in turn has led to the rise in commodity prices. So the increase in commodity prices has been very clearly demand-led. It hasn't been due to supply-side shocks at all. Um, I think one also needs to look, uh, when we look at supply-side uh, disruption as opposed to shock, um, obviously supply chains uh, globally um, have been disrupted by COVID. Um, and whether it's Chinese ports being closed because of COVID, whether it has been um, to, you know, blockages at US and European ports um, because ships are waiting to come in, logistics problems in the ports, uh, transferring goods through the ports. Um, all of that has resulted in supply chain inflation. Um, and that's reflected. There are two very good indicators of supply chain inflation. Uh, one is the Baltic Dry Index, um, and the other one is the Drury uh, container, global container index. And if one looks at that global container index, you know, 18 months ago, that was running at $2,000 per container. It then jumped to October 2021 to over $10,000 per container. It's now come down to around $9,000 per container. But that's, you know, is, is, is a quantification um, of uh, the supply chain shock. Um, and you know, one can get into a debate about the impact of COVID on inflation. Um, but you know, where we have had uh, pockets of COVID breaking out again, whether it be Europe or Asia, um, that has actually caused further supply chain uh, problems. And that in turn um, has boosted inflation. I think a final consideration is wage inflation and labor market disruption. Um, and you know, as a global economy has recovered, you know, we have seen you know, strong demand for labor, and that has resulted in some labor shortages. Uh, a prime example of labor shortages is actually the UK. Uh, the latest data is that there are now over 1.1 million job vacancies in the UK. Uh, that's partly because of the recovery in demand. Obviously, in the case of the UK, there is a Brexit factor as well. Um, but labor market disruption has resulted in certain economies, notably the UK, notably the US, in Europe, also evidence in Spain, some initial evidence in Germany um, of wage price inflation. And that in turn, um, obviously pushes up the cost side of the equation. So to come back to your question, I think, you know, number one, inflation has a negative impact on consumer confidence. Uh, I think the second point is that one has to look at the causes of inflation. And what we've seen in 2021 is both demand 
um, pull factors and cost push factors. Um, so it's not just one simple uh, element that is causing higher inflation. It's much more complicated than that. Um, I do think, however, uh, there are strong grounds for uh, agreeing with central bankers like Christine Lagarde uh, that saying that inflation, um, I don't like using the word transitory, but I do think that when we're having this conversation in the second quarter of next year, uh, we will be looking at a more benign inflation environment. So, you know, US inflation could ease back to under 4%, uh, European inflation, Eurozone inflation back under two and a half percent. The UK probably, like the States, close to four percent. Um, in Asia, inflation is not really a major problem. Um, so, you know, Chinese inflation, possibly two to two and a half percent and Japan close to one percent. And specific factors in Asia uh, restraining uh, any increase in uh, inflation. Um, so that does mean that, you know, by the middle of next year, Inflation figures in Europe and the States are still going to be above central bank targets, um, but the pressure that we're seeing on inflation, the upward pressure, um, is fairly intense at the moment, and that will probably continue into January and February. So the numbers in January and February will continue to look fairly ugly. But I think as we go into the second quarter, I'm assuming that this pressure on inflation will start to ease off. And what could derail this inflation scenario that would worry moderation uh, across the globe? You mentioned the impact of COVID, which is not clear. But could the Omicron, again, because of China's very strict policy on, on COVID, and, and new outbreaks across the world could bring more disruption to supply chain? Is that something that are factored in by investors and central banks when considering the outlook for 2022? Right. Well, on, on COVID and uh, the latest variant, Omicron, I would actually recommend to everybody the very good work being done by our friends at Bloomberg. And they actually have a global vaccine tracker. Um, and the data, I think, is reasonably straightforward, which is that if you look at Asian countries like Japan, South Korea, China, and then the ASEAN countries, uh, then across most of the European countries and the states, um, first and second doses um, are now uh, between 70 and 80 percent. Um, and you know, what is critical is obviously the rollout of the third dose, what is called the booster dose. And you know, that is happening reasonably quickly in a number of countries, uh, notably the States um, and, um, and the UK, um, and also a number of European countries like France. So I think the picture on Omicron, and although there is a high degree of uncertainty, but the overall picture, uh, if one looks at data so far from South Africa, uh, where this variant seems to have evolved, uh, the data is that it is very transmissible. Um, so it's not surprising that infection rates are going up. But where vaccinations uh, cover most of the population, uh, the numbers of hospitalizations and fatalities is reasonably low. Uh, and there is also evidence that this Omicron variant may, and I emphasize the word may because we have high degree of uncertainty, uh, may not be um, you know, as damaging as uh, previous variants of COVID. So I think that you know, we're in a very different situation than we were um, you know, this time last year or when we had the shock to the global economy in the first half of 2020. And the reason why we're in a very different position 
um, is that you know we all understand you know the dangers of COVID and its variants and you know the vaccination numbers in most countries in Asia, Europe and the States and actually if one comes back to one country which had a serious COVID problem, Brazil, there the vaccination numbers have uh, have increased dramatically in uh, in recent months um, and likewise in a number of other Latin American countries like so Chile and Peru. Um, I would also highlight that new COVID cases in Asia are currently very low indeed. So I think it's naive to say that you know, COVID is going to go away. Um, it's naive to assume there won't be uh, more variants. I, mean, I think there's certainly you know, one can forecast that this problem is going to be ongoing. But I think we're in a much better position given the global vaccine programs. Now, clearly, there are some countries... And unfortunately, a number of them are in Africa, where vaccination rates are still extremely low. So, um, you know, that is, is, is a problem for you know, East Africa and uh, countries such as uh, Nigeria. Um, but if one looks at the rest of the world uh, and looking at the vaccination numbers, um, I'm working on the assumption that COVID and its variants uh, will not have a further shock to the economy. It may depress growth slightly, um, but we're talking you know, of basis points rather than a reversal back into the sort of economic shock that we had in 2020. Okay, so that was point number three. COVID recovered as point number two. And now we're left with monetary policies, f- fiscal policies, and, and growth. Can we maybe do monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, before ending up with the macro figures? <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, monetary policy, we have some divergence at the moment. And I think one has to start with the Federal Reserve. Um, we have had a number of speeches from Federal Reserve um, members recently. Uh, suggesting that the pace of tapering of quantitative easing will be accelerated. So originally, guidance from the Federal Reserve was that they were going to reduce their asset purchases uh, by $15 billion per month. So just to remind everybody, the quantitative easing program was $120 billion per month. So Originally, they were going to suggest, okay, we're going to take it down from 120 billion per month to 105 billion in November, then 90 billion in December. Um, There is now a suggestion that that tapering uh, will be increased to 25 to 30 billion per month. So, whereas originally the guidance was that the quantitative easing program would end in June or July next year. Uh, the uh, guidance now is that it will probably end in March or April. And that's against the background of the very high inflation numbers in the states that we talked about. And I think the key point is that the Federal Reserve needs to control and anchor inflationary expectations. And as at today, that is not the case. So that tightening in monetary policy by the Fed, I think, is inevitable. Um, if we had had this discussion six months ago, Uh, The market was not discounting any increase in interest rates by the Federal Reserve in 2022. It is now discounting, and I think this is correct, uh, two interest rate increases in 2022. So that takes the federal funds rate from zero to 25 basis points at the moment, um, up to 50 to 75 basis points. And I think that that is a very high probability of that occurring. 
Um, and I think inevitably, therefore, we will get some upside um, in 10-year US Treasury yields. So, you know, in that environment of monetary tightening, albeit with inflationary pressures easing off, I think a central case assumption would be that 10-year US Treasury yields will uh, head towards 2% by perhaps the second quarter or the middle of uh, 2022. So that's the Federal Reserve. Now, the ECB is actually, I think... One, one, one question. Would, in the US, would it mean that we would still be in an environment of negative uh, uh, real yields? Uh, absolutely, because uh, if you take my central case assumption, um, and you know, obviously this is subject to change, but the central case currently is that by the middle of next year, you will have American inflation moderating to 35 to 4%. Uh, you will have 10-year U.S. Treasury yields at around 2%. So you still have a negative real yield of you know, 1.5% to 2%. Now, that is significantly lower than what we have at the moment, because at the moment we have inflation close to 7% and, real yield, and um, Treasury yields at 1.5%. So we have a negative real yield at the moment of 5.5%. So the answer to your question is yields stay negative in real terms, but the quantum of that negativity comes down. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think just moving on to um, the um, ECB, the ECB, I think, has an interesting challenge, um, which is that inflation clearly has risen. Inflation in Germany and Spain has risen actually quite dramatically. It's less of a problem in France and Italy. So we have a very clear pattern of divergence within the Eurozone on uh, inflation data. Um, the Mrs. Lagarde thinks that inflation is transitory. She thinks it will come down reasonably quickly. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think a working assumption is that Eurozone inflation will be plus or minus 2.5% by the middle of next year. And that's assuming that commodity prices stabilise uh, and also it assumes that any upward pressure on wage inflation is moderate. And certainly that is the case at the moment. Uh, and with the exception of Spain, wage inflation actually in uh, the Eurozone uh, remains very muted indeed. Um, so I think that uh, the ECB obviously has to make a decision on what it does about its uh, pandemic emergency purchase programme. Uh, if we look at the last few months, the ECB has made asset purchases of 80 billion euros per month. Uh, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that by March of 2022, that'll be down to 50 billion per month. And you know, we, in the second quarter of next year, you know, we could be down to 20 to 30 billion a month. And that's against a background rather like the Federal Reserve of trying to anchor inflationary expectations. Um, and it's also against a background of reasonably strong trend growth. And uh, I think that it's quite likely that European Eurozone growth um, in 2022 will exceed 4%. Um, so that, you know, that is well above uh, the historic average. Now, I think growth in 2023 probably comes back down you know, towards 2%, i.e. close to the historic norm. But uh, at least in the first half of next year, the growth numbers uh, will be reasonably robust. So I think it's open question as to whether the ECB raises interest rates in 2022. I, my own view is they probably will raise rates once, um, but the main thrust of European policy will be this reduction in monthly asset purchases. 
And to some extent, markets are discounting that already. And it's interesting to note that the spread between 10-year Italy and 10-year Bunds, um, which only three months ago um, was under 100 basis points, that's now widened out to 130 basis points. So the markets are starting to discount uh, that the ECB is going to reduce its asset purchases. Uh, here in the UK, I think it's inevitable um, that by January or February that uh, the base rate will increase uh, against a background of um, obviously this, uh, this rise in inflation. And I think uh, we could easily see base rates um, up to 50 to 75 basis points by the end of next year. Now, what's interesting is uh, I think two central banks worth touching on. First of all, uh, the Bank of Japan, uh, which I, um, the Bank of Japan on the surface appears uh, to be doing very little. Um, but um, I think if we're going to get a surprise, it's going to be stronger Japanese economic data in the first quarter of next year. And uh, the Bank of Japan very quietly um, is actually tightening policy. Uh, so it stopped buying Japanese equities. Um, it's going to allow uh, JGB yields 10 years to rise to 20 basis points. Uh, but more interestingly, um, it's actually stabilized or reduced recently slightly uh, the size of its balance sheet. So the Bank of Japan, I would actually argue, is, is very slowly and very cautiously moving uh, towards a tighter stance. People's Bank of China is doing exactly the opposite. And we've discussed in the past the problems in the Chinese real estate market, and those problems um, are still being resolved. And you know, last week, um, we had the formal default uh, of Evergrande and also uh, the default of a smaller real estate company called Kaiser. So the real estate issues need to be resolved. Uh, and the People's Bank of China is um, easing monetary policy by cutting bank reserve requirements and injecting liquidity uh, into the banking system. So you know, over the last two weeks, they have injected over a trillion Chinese renminbi into the banking system. So uh, there we have a policy against a background of low inflation and also too strong a Chinese renminbi. So that's another factor. Uh, and you know, they are, I think, going to pursue easier monetary uh, measures, trying to guarantee that growth at the end of this year and the first half of next year you know, stays on trend close to 5%. They don't want growth uh, to be weaker than that level. So we are transitioning to the growth topic, and it's hard to make a clear distinction between all those topics. But what is the outlook for globally? What's the bracket? What's the estimate for 2022? And then maybe again, looking at the with the US, Europe, and, and Asia. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, actually, before we answer that question, let me just make one comment on fiscal policy, because I think that there's a very interesting change in fiscal policy by most governments, which is relevant for um, investors. Uh, and whereas in 2020, fiscal policy was focusing on emergency measures like labor market support, support for consumers, support for companies against that background of the economic shock from COVID. Uh, now, and this is obviously related to all the work that is being done to address climate change, uh, now, fiscal policies in most countries, uh, and we see this particularly with the new German government, the new German coalition, uh, fiscal policy is very much focused on long-term investment in infrastructure, whether it be transport infrastructure, infrastructure in cities such as smart cities, 
uh, infrastructure in transport, um, i.e. You know, the focus on public transport, mass transit systems, electric trains, investment in alternative energy and decarbonisation. Um, and an alternative energy, obviously, a focus on wind, solar, hydro. Uh, I think it's too early, uh, unfortunately, to talk about the rollout of hydrogen-based energy sources. Um, but obviously, that's work uh, in progress. And then also, I would also add, uh, fiscal investment in all, all aspects of digitalization, i.e., you know, getting broadband out to uh, more remote communities and the infrastructure of technology. And then a final point, just coming back to transport, um, obviously the switch towards electric vehicles away from petrol or diesel uh, fueled vehicles. So we're seeing this big change in fiscal policy, um, and that obviously is very relevant uh, for the investment management industry, which is acting as a co-investor with governments uh, in these areas addressing climate change with infrastructure investment and uh, digitalization, etc. So it's quite a long list, but I think uh, we will see a focus uh, by investors uh, in that um, in that area. So if one comes back to your question on uh, on growth numbers, the consensus for 2022. Uh, is that the U.S. will grow between 3.8 and 4 percent, and you know that's after um, you know six percent growth uh, in 2021. Uh, the consensus is that eurozone growth will be 4.2 percent, uh, and no, and that's after you know close to six percent growth in 2021. So, you know, we are seeing more moderate growth numbers, and as I mentioned earlier on. Uh, those growth numbers could you know, decelerate further towards 2%, 2 to 2.5% 2 in 2023. And that's a reflection of the fact that we've had you know, a very strong recovery this year. Uh, so there are base effects involved. It also reflects uh, the impact of tighter monetary policies, as we've discussed. Um, and also it reflects the fact that fiscal policy is focusing on long-term investment rather than short-term spending. Um, I think another factor, of course, is that uh, consumers who had very high levels of savings um, are now uh, reducing those savings. So uh, spending power by consumers is reduced. Um, I think another point to watch, uh, and it's too early to uh, come up with a definitive uh, comment here, um, but one area to watch very carefully is corporate inventories. In response to strong demand in 2021 and in response to supply chain disruption, uh, inventories are being built up. Now, obviously, the risk in the inventory cycle is that if we go into the first half of next year, that we might have excess inventories, which then companies are forced to dump. And that in turn is one factor lowering inflation towards the end of next year. But also the dumping of those inventories could have, um, it would be associated with lower growth because companies having built up those inventories don't need to boost production further. So I think everything points to a moderation in growth. I mentioned growth forecasts for Europe and the States. I just two other comments. I think Japan, the, the consensus is the growth will be two and a half percent. I think it will probably be higher at three percent. And China probably will be able to hold growth at five percent. Uh, one area where I think growth forecasts have downside risk is actually the UK. 
the consensus is that UK growth will be 5% next year, but monetary policy is being tightened, fiscal policy is being tightened with payroll taxes rising, corporation tax rising. Um, and I think that you know, we do have the, you know, this is very well documented by official um, bodies, but we do have, um, obviously, a negative Brexit impact. So I think that, you know, all of that suggests that, um, you know, the UK growth forecasts actually may be revised downwards rather than upwards. But that's the growth outlook. So the overall trend, I don't think one should be sort of too negative, but the overall trend, I come back to the word I used right at the beginning, which is one of normalcy i.e., you know, 2020 was the shock, 2021 was the rebound, 2022 is a, and 2023 is a revert, a reversion to the norm. Thanks. Thanks for the overview, Bob. And I was, I was thinking, what question I should ask you next is about investor positioning and what, what would you do in this context? And my immediate, uh, you know, beginner uh, reaction would be to say, well, if disregarding valuation, it seems very favorable to equity markets. Again, this uh, macro environment you described. Well, I think the key question is negative real yields. And we've had very strong equity market performance in the States and Europe uh, this year. Uh, We've actually had rather mediocre performance in a number of Asian markets like Japan and China. Um, so those markets are now actually looking fairly valued relative to Europe and, uh, and the States. The States obviously is looking particularly um, overvalued at the moment. But the overall picture of negative real yields staying negative uh, is equity market supportive. And, you know, although uh, corporate earnings growth is moderating, the numbers are still strong relative to historic averages. So, you know, we could easily see Eurozone corporate earnings growth next year at over 10%, US corporate earnings growth, you know, at around 9%, Chinese corporate earnings growth, 14, 15%, and, you know, with also really strong numbers across uh, the whole of Asia. So I think all of those factors suggest that, you know, we haven't talked about geopolitical risks, but unless we get another shock, um, I think that uh, equity markets will probably maintain current levels, but it would obviously be naive to assume that we're going to see the sort of gains that we've seen in 2021. So I think we'll see rotation uh, with Asia uh, recovering, Europe holding its gains, but some rotation by sector uh, into industrials, consumer sectors, um, and also infrastructure. So maybe let's finish with the scary stuff, geopolitical risk, or maybe um, any, you know, any risk you consider. Um, I want to say black swan events, but if right. we can't call black swan events, but uh, let me throw a few, uh, a few scenarios. Russia invading Ukraine, uh, mm. ra- raising tension between the, uh, the US and, and China. Um, any other risk that you foresee? I don't know. Um, do you want to comment on those two ones? On, and maybe... Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, my own view is that it's going to be a slow burn pressure. Now, what do I mean by that? It, it means that China will continue to put pressure on Taiwan um, and it will continue with its current policy. But is actually China going to, you know have a outright invasion of Taiwan. Um, I think in a year of 2022, which is very important politically uh, for China because they have the National Party uh, Congress um, towards the end of the year. Um, and you know, that is important. And I think that 
putting pressure on Taiwan is the most is the most likely scenario rather than outright invasion of Taiwan. So it's going to remain tense, but I don't I would be surprised if we see a dramatic escalation there. Uh, in terms of Russia and Ukraine, it's obviously much more difficult. Um, we've seen so far um, quite strong pushback from the United States and the European countries onto Russia, uh, threatening quite severe restrictions and, and sanctions. Uh, and possibly, you know, sanctions which would be as severe as those imposed on Iran. Um, so I think that what we'll probably see again is sort of Russian pressure on Ukraine, um, probably, you know, continued Russian interference or activity uh, in the Donbass region. But, you know, the, the potential for a complete invasion of Ukraine, I think, would be uh, I, I think is something that Putin would backtrack from. Um, I would be surprised if... Uh, so I think it's going to remain difficult. It's going to remain tense. But again, is it going to escalate out of control? I think the answer is one certainly hopes not, and it wouldn't be a central case uh, scenario. Um, I think just a few other political comments to make is that obviously we have a new government in Germany. And all the evidence is that that coalition of the Social Democrats, the Free Democrats and the Greens um, is actually, you know, it looks a very strong coalition at the moment. And that means the fiscal policy, which we talked about earlier, is likely to be eased in Germany. Um, we also have the French presidential election. And I think that's going to be fascinating. And, you know, there is a reasonable probability as we talk um, that Macron may lose, may lose to the Republicans. So I think that needs to be uh, looked at. I think either way, we're going to have a centre-right government in France. So I don't see any particular political shock to France. Uh, here in the UK, um, what can I say? It's political volatility is the other question. Uh, you know, we have a government which is under severe pressure. Uh, you see that in the latest opinion polls. Um, and, you know, there was an opinion poll today actually organised by the, uh, the Times newspaper uh, where only 18% of those people polled think that Boris Johnson will remain the prime minister over the next year. So there is a consensus that we're going to have a change of leadership in one form or another in the UK. So that could lead to volatility in, uh, in UK assets. Other shocks, obviously, you know, if we're wrong on inflation and inflation stays stubbornly high. Um, a list of other shocks would be, um, you know, if the central banks get it wrong and tighten too much and too fast. I don't think that's likely, but obviously it's a risk factor uh, to be aware of. Um, overall, um, I think institutional investors are reasonably conservatively positioned at the moment. And I do think, as I mentioned, we will see this rotation uh, with a focus on Europe and Asia and probably on more value stocks, uh, not necessarily defensive stocks, uh, but certainly out of the more uh, volatile cyclical sectors. Um, and I think one big theme for 2022 is an investor focus on dividends and certainty that dividends will be maintained or increased and certainty as to uh, profitability uh, being maintained or increased. So, you know, companies which are struggling with profitability um, or with revenue generation, um, I think that's where you're going to see the corrections. Thank you. Thank you, Bob, for the comprehensive overview. I mean, uh, I think we left no stones uh, unturned. We tried our best. <laughs> 
thanks for listening and uh, we'll be um, uh, talking again early 2022 and continue our regular podcast uh, through the through the year and i uh, hope you enjoyed this 2021 season of the uh, podcast and, and more to come in 2022 stay safe and uh, happy holidays thank you for listening for more icma podcasts and further information on capital markets please visit our website icmagroup.org